holidays to all of you. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. This is a super thrilling show. Uh, This one kind of fell into my lap. Often I have these mapped out pretty well in advance and I know what we're going to be talking about and and uh, and most of the time I've heard of the person we're going to have on the show. This one, uh, out of the blue in March, I got an email from a guy named Mark Stuckey. He goes by Forger. He didn't. He doesn't like being called Mark, which I didn't learn till the end of this show, so we'll call him Forger for now. Uh, but he sent me this email and he said, hey, I've been listening to your podcast and I'm really enjoying it. I'm kind of late to this thing, but I'm a paraglider and you know, I dig paragliding and um, here's a little bit about me, you know, maybe we should talk. And then I started reading and uh, this guy's got a resume that was just like, this has got to be bullshit. There's no way anybody could have done all this stuff. Uh, and I immediately reached back out and said, I'm going to read you the resume here in a second. But uh, I immediately reached back out and said, yes, absolutely, we have to do this. And then for various reasons, I just haven't been able to connect with, with Forger uh, and then Last, about three weeks ago, I sent him an email. I said, let's do this. We got to do this. This is just, your your history is unbelievable. We got to get you on the show. And he said, I'm a little busy this week. Uh, in a few days, you're going to find out why. And I was like, well, what? And then a couple of days later, uh, I was reading Flipboard and going through the news. And Virgin Galactic had launched their first, you know, truly successful Uh, flight to the edge of space 51 miles up uh, you know weightless you know that's 275,000 feet you know uh, Branson and Musk and Bezos are all in this kind of space race with SpaceX and uh, Blue Blue Horizon I think is Bezos's and then and Branson's is Virgin Galactic and uh, but he's trying to take people like you and me that happen to have two hundred fifty thousand dollars to spare sitting around, which I certainly don't. But uh, make it, he's he he's after something different than Musk and Bezos are. But he's trying to to make a, a kind of like commercial way to take people up into space so they can see the Earth from from the uh, aspect of space. And it's pretty exciting. They've been working on it for years. Well, their lead test pilot is my guest today. Uh, Mark Forger Stuckey uh, piloted that aircraft, uh, but that is just one of the tiny, tiny things. And that's not so tiny, but not often I get to talk to an astronaut. I can tell I'm nervous already, but this was this was super exciting, and I think you're going to find it really exciting as well. Um, before we get to Forger, and before we get to the, the, all the amazing things he's done, uh, just a quick bit of housekeeping. Um, many of you know that Paul Guschelbauer came through town back in August uh, on his way down his overland expedition. He's flying a Super Cub with his wife Magdalena from the northern tip of Alaska to the southern tip of South America. Uh, they just made it. They just got down to Chile, so that's almost done. Been an unbelievable trip, which uh, I feel kind of honored to have been a part of because I was the one that introduced him to Kenny up in Alaska right before I was doing my North Unknown project and that's what got him into Super Cubs and flying and the whole thing and and, uh, anyway it's uh, been really exciting to watch him do his whole expedition all the way down through the Americas Uh, and they just got here but when he stopped here 
in in Idaho in August. Uh, he got his personal best. We had a really big, big, big triangle day, and uh, he was, you know, pretty blown away, flying around at nearly 18,000 feet that day. And then uh, he gave this amazing talk about his 2017 XAlps campaign and XAlps in general. But uh, it was about an hour-long talk down at a friend of mine's house, and uh, we recorded it uh, with the with the thinking that we would put this all this out to all of you and uh but it has been a nightmare to edit because when you're recording somebody sitting at a house and uh you know you get the whole flicker because he's got his screen and uh anyway it's been really hard so a huge shout out to miles uh our editor for pulling this off it has taken a couple months literally to put it together um and uh but instead of showing what was on his screen you know we found all the original videos that he used and so um i really love how it came together um and you can learn a lot from this uh this is a bonus episode it's a video episode to our patreon supporters but it's also by now you all those of you who support the show uh should have also gotten a, a newsletter with the link for that as well if you support the show so one of these little bonus things we do on the side another reason that if you can to support the show because you'll get little nuggets like this but uh if you haven't seen that one please go check it out it's 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 super fun and a lot of learning there and that, you know this was that was his fourth X-Alps Paul's been in third three times three of his four campaigns and he's doing it again this year so uh, some some great learning there great stuff so uh, Forger Mark Stuckey uh, I just I gotta I gotta read this because his his resume like I said is just unbelievable uh, he has flown over 10,000 hours on 200 different types of aircraft, uh, hang gliders, paragliders, sailplanes, fighters, transports, blimps, spaceships, <laughs> most recently. Uh, and he uniquely has, I think what that means is there's no one else has this, is over 1,000 hours apiece in the F-4 Phantom, the F-16, the F-18, the T-38. He's also went through a little period that we talk about in the show, flying commercial jets, of course, B-37. Uh, he started hang gliding at, in, at the age of 15 and 74 after seeing the article that we discussed back in the hang gliding episode in National Geographic that just started the mad craze. Uh, in 80, he joined the Marines because he really wanted to be a fighter pilot, test pilot, and eventually an astronaut. In uh, 82, he got a sailplane's li- sailplane license. In 82, he also joined the Navy. And uh, his first assignment was to fly the Phantom, the F-4. In 85, he was a Top Gun graduate. And uh, I I asked him this, but he did that whole, you know, the whole scene in the movie, Top Gun, where... where uh, uh, Tom Cruise flies over the Russian fighter and flips upside down and flips him off and takes a picture. Well, Mark does that. So uh, you'll hear about that. So I'm convinced that they uh, they did that scene directly because of, of Mark's influence. Uh, then he becomes a United States Air Force test pilot in, in 89. In 92, he starts flying paragliders. And uh, in 93, he becomes a test pilot for NASA and uh, did some really crazy stuff there. Some of it I didn't even understand, but he, he starts flying the SR-71 before they shut that program down. And he did six arrow toes from an F-106 fighter where he was hanging like a thousand feet off a line <laughs> down, below the, down below the fighter. Uh, so we talk about that in this show gets to know Steve Fawcett and uh, a couple people in the Perland project and uh, then in 2003 goes back to military active duty and goes over and does four deployments in Iraq uh, flies does some pretty wild stuff over there that I won't give away now but he does much stuff there and then 
Uh, let's see, in 2004, trained to be a payload commander for the mid-air retrieval of the Genesis spacecraft. In 2004, he co-authored the book Paragliding, a pilot's training manual. Maybe many of you have uh, read that or seen that with Mike Meyer, a very good manual on paragliding. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, wrote for, wrote for Ushba in 2007 and 2000 to 2009. So some of you might remember his There I Was safety articles. In 2009, he retired from the Air Force and was hired by Scaled Composites. But, so that's Bert Rutan, a very famous person in the whole uh, flying world, the, the, engine, the powered flying world. And I uh, started test flying Spaceship Two and White Knight Two, and those are the two ships that they just used that in the, that he piloted. He piloted spaceships to Spaceship Two uh, to the edge of space. So that just went down. Uh, there's been some tragedy on the way, as you can imagine, and an unbelievable number of crazy stories. Uh, of course, you know we would have needed days and days and days to get into all of them, but we'd get into some pretty interesting ones here. But uh, that space flight, yeah, that just went down. Mark is now 59. He has lived a thousand lives, and I feel very honored to have uh, shared this experience with him and be able to share it with you. So uh, without further delay, please enjoy this most insane talk with a very, very interesting forger, Stecky. With your fist in Mark, it is uh, really incredible to have you on the show. Uh, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you now for a couple of years since you sent me your resume, which is just ridiculous and made me feel like I have not done enough with my life and and I've done quite a bit. So your resume is just kind of ridiculous, but you've just had uh, a really amazing day. Uh, three days ago, you were the pilot in command and uh, went to what? 51 miles above the Earth. I guess that's kind of the boundary of space. Uh, you reached Mach 2.9, which sounds awfully fast to me. That's about three times the speed of sound, uh, according to the article. I just, I can't. So congratulations, number one. I just can't even imagine what that's like. I know you've been, uh, you've been working at this with that team at Virgin Galactic for many, many years. Uh, I imagine this is impossible to put into words, but because it's so fresh, it just happened three days ago. Can you can you give it a shot? Yeah, I can. But first, I want to say it's it's great to talk to you. But and it was a little funny for me to send you my resume out of blue and say, "Hey, uh, this is me. You might be interested in talking to me." Um, I had definite reservations about doing that, but I I do uh, just give a lot of uh, credit to initially hang gliding and paragliding in my life. And I thought maybe I did have some lessons learned that might be of interest to uh, the people that listen to you, just like I listen to your podcast. Well, I, I appreciate you reaching out. And this is, I think this, we're going to have a good time here <laughs> and learn a lot. <laughs> now, if I can only remember your actual question, but as far as, uh, <laughs> as far as a couple of days ago, we, Finally had a, a reasonably long duration burn with Spaceship Two, and it was specifically targeted to be long enough to get us above 50 statute miles, which is the uh, at least a U.S. Current, uh, historical definition for a space flight. Uh, and you know, it went great. It uh, we went, as you said, almost three times the speed of sound, which is funny. It's not as fast as I've I have gone faster, but I've never been anywhere near that high. Um, 
and but looking down on the earth and from 270,000 plus feet was really incredible. You could see, uh, you know, we're over Mojave and I could see down towards Cabo San Lucas, well, you know, the Sea of Cortez and Baja California out there. It looked like I could toss a rock into LAX and, you know, I if I would have spun the vehicle around, I could have seen San Francisco Bay. But uh, I was trying to save some propellant since it was our first time up there that high. But anyway, it's just an amazing experience. But and it was, a, you know, probably a big step for me. But really, it's a small step for the company because we want to start doing more and more of those and regular flights with uh, passengers in the back to share that experience with them. And that's what I really look forward to doing. I like the small steps. It, you know, it's, it sounds like uh, when we when he first stepped on the moon. You know, uh, it was giant one small step for man, one giant step for mankind. I mean, I I think you're being humble, but it's uh, I mean, what a, just a, what a remarkable achievement. It's a you know we uh, it's kind of a niche market, and I don't want to act like what we're doing is anywhere near going to the moon or or going into orbit. Uh, but what we're doing is a very, very, very small fraction of that price. And it's even though it's expensive to the everyday person, it really will allow thousands of people to have access to space, even if, even if it is only for a few minutes uh, of time. It is potentially life changing and it is an amazing experience. Oh, I just I can't imagine. I, I hope there'll be pictures and and all the other stuff uh, from your from your cockpit window here shortly. That must have just been uh, that must have been very special because I they, what was the highest you'd been before this? And in, in the New Yorker article, which we'll get to here in a little bit, it talked. I think there was a it wasn't too long back that you went to like ninety thousand, but this is you know almost triple that. Yeah, I guess uh, I've been. Uh around 114,000, I think, in, in Spaceship Two. Uh, I've been above 80,000 in the SR-71 Blackbird and, and significantly faster than Mach 2.9 in, in the Blackbird. Uh, but this was way higher for sure. <laughs> you, and, and in the Blackbird, you didn't go Mach 3 straight up. You said in your in your said in your email after you did it on Thursday, and I I congratulated you because uh, I'd been watching the the news wires. I I figured something was going down because we we'd spoken earlier in the week, and you said, "Yeah, keep your eye on things. It's going to be a busy week." Uh, you said it was kind of like you know like SIV and paragliding. <laughs> uh, can, can you describe like in what way? <laughs> I, mean, I can't I can't imagine two point nine Mach two point nine and floating along at 40k in a paraglider <laughs> well I, I don't know how it is for you you know <laughs> world-class paraglider pilot uh for for me i i consider myself uh i mean i've been paragliding for years i go i mean i've got a year without flying sometimes i go a few times a year now that my son started flying a couple years ago i i maybe go once a month, sometimes more than that. Sometimes I go a couple of months without flying, and you know, and I've I've flown over a hundred miles uh, and tend to do okay. But I because I don't fly that often, I kind of consider myself a a P three. Technically, I am a P three. I I refuse to get a P four because I don't want to think I'm that good. <laughs> but so so I kind of have these. Uh, I'm a P three kind of guy that maybe can have, pull off. P4 flights, 
and every once in a while looked like a P1 on launch. So, you know, I'm kind of a, because I don't kite enough in the desert. Um, so anyway, I don't know how SIV is for you. I've done a couple and I really enjoy them, but it's not like it's pure fun. You know, you're, mm. there's always some threat. I mean, the first one I went to, I, I watched a guy die. He was not in my course, but um, you certainly, you know, there is some threat to it. Sure. And, that, and that's how this is. You know, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, you're doing test flying and going really fast and really high. And aside from, you know, the overriding test pilot's creed of, you know, creed of not screwing up and wanting to get all the test points as accurately as possible, you know, you also don't want to relax and do something stupid and cause things to go really, really wrong. Yeah, we'll we'll get to a, the darker side of that here in a little bit with one of your one of your friends. Um, but before we do, uh, yeah, your your flying history. You've flown hang gliders, paragliders, sailplanes. You were kind of part of the Perlan project for a while. Fighters, transports, blimps, <laughs> and obviously uh, now you're flying spaceships. Uh, and I include in, in, including, I believe, uniquely over a thousand hours a piece. Uh, in the F4, the F16, the F18, the T38. Uh, so, you know, if somebody wrote that to me, I would think, okay, well, they're obviously a pilot. But if, you know, if you and I were standing at a party and we didn't know some, anybody and somebody came up and said, hey, uh, I'm Gavin, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? <laughs> uh, it depends. Uh, yeah, that, that's a tough one. Sometimes I I say uh, I'm an engineer. Sometimes I, I tend to say I'm a pilot or, or a test pilot because if, if I downplay it, you know, it, it's tough for me because if I say, well, I'm a test pilot for Virgin Galactic, it sounds like I'm on a big ego trip. And then if I say I'm a pilot and it takes them half a dozen questions to finally get to the fact that I am a test pilot for Virgin Galactic, then it comes across as false modesty. So I'm kind of damned if I do and damned if I don't. Right. Do you ever a answer astronaut? No. no. Well, <laughs> you should. So, you know, and it's funny because, you know, at NASA, when you get selected to be an astronaut, they you're an astronaut. You just haven't earned your astronaut wings. And to me, that's always been a bit of a head scratch for me. It's like, you know, you're getting selected to be a pilot, you're a pilot, even though you haven't flown yet. Uh, so I, I would never have called myself an astronaut before going into space. And honestly, I don't see myself calling myself one now. Um, I am thrilled that I get to do what I do, and I put a lot of value in it. But it's it, it's the experience. It's not the title. Mm. So this article, uh, you pointed it to me, it was written back in, in August in the New Yorker, which is, you know, one of the best magazines and one of some of the best writing ever, in, in my opinion. So it was no surprise that this one was just mind-blowingly good. Uh, the title of it was Virgin Galactic's Rocket Man, which that's how I'd answer at a party. Yes, I'm Virgin Galactic's Rocket Man. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's riveting. It's an amazing story. I'll, I'll have the link up to it in the 
show notes. And those of you who are listening, just you can almost stop right now and just go read this article. It's fantastic. But one of the things it does, among many other things, it's 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 uh, you know it's a good document about your life. But it, it also talks about this kind of space race, I guess, if you will, this modern space race between uh, Branson's Virgin Galactic, who you work for, Bezos's Blue Origin, and Elon Musk's SpaceX. They're they're kind of going after three different things, as as I understand it. Uh, I'm obviously no expert in this whole field. Um, but SpaceX and Blue Origin are pursuing kind of what we've seen in the movies, like a vertical launch scheme, uh, like going to the moon. And and you you say in the article that you know that that's that that's automated and I'm quoting you they've got some some astronauts but I don't think they know what the hell they're going to do besides act like they're doing something uh and I saw another thing in there that they were they're called spam in a can so I'm not we're, we're obviously not dishing them that's just how those rockets work and how those ships work but can you explain the difference between uh, I think a lot of people don't know, you, you know, spaceship two, which you're piloting, uh, and and rockets that go that are that are meant to go much higher. Yeah. So uh, the spam in the can was a reference from the the movie The Right Stuff that came out in when was that the late eighties, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that was I think Chuck Yeager uh, was given credit for calling the early Mercury astronauts that because they were kind of along for the ride, even though they had some kind of manual backup capability and did some maneuver in space. Um, it's pretty much just the computer flying the trajectory and, and them riding along. And, you know, that was very different than classical test piloting. But it also sounds like a bit of uh, sour grapes also. I mean, if, if you said, hey, do you want to pilot a, a rocket plane on a suborbital flight or or fly orbital automated i, I mean i i think twice about that one because uh, i think orbital would be really really cool mm. uh, I, I know it would be but manually flying a rocket plane is uh, amazingly cool also uh, i guess what i need to do is uh, eventually fly a, a rocket plane to orbital now that would be the ultimate uh, but to, to talk about what you're doing uh, or, or to get to your question, so, you know, Elon Musk is pure orbital. I mean, he, he's he's taking big satellites to space and, you know, his long term goal is Mars. And I think everything he's doing is a stepping stone to get to Mars uh, by launching big satellites and getting government contracts. It's paying the bills to fund the research and the development of the Mars spacecraft. Bezos is kind of, well, Richard Branson is just trying to do the suborbital space tourism. So, you know, take a half a dozen well-heeled customers up into space for a few minutes and bring them back down for a quarter of a million bucks a, a ticket, which sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but, you know, people can spend the better part of $100,000 to be guided up Mount Everest. So if you have that kind of market out there, you obviously would have a lot of people that could have that kind of money to pay for a hour-long flight. Uh, but, you know, that's opposed to going orbital, which will cost tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. So even though you can poo-poo us for just doing these suborbital cannonball trajectories, it is a very small fraction of the price, and it opens up space to a lot more people instead of just a handful of people. Uh, 
And Bezos is kind of doing something in between. He's doing suborbital and working on orbital and ultimately wants to go to Mars too. So I don't know if uh, he'll always be doing suborbital, if there'll be direct competition for a long time. I think what they're doing is really cool. They do take off vertically. Uh, and then the booster comes back and lands vertically like Elon Musk does with his Falcon 9 here lately. Although uh, the capsule where the people are in, uh, they've had a handful of flights now, but they haven't had people in them yet. Uh, it's all automated, but the capsule comes down under parachute, looking like the Apollo capsule did from the uh, late 60s and 70s. So they're very different, uh, but I think uh, I think they are are all amazing in their own way. So we're going to – shortly here, we're going to rewind and go way back to how you got into all this and your beginnings in, in hang gliding and your military and stuff. But um, before we do, one of the real moving parts uh, of the article was uh, your friend, Mike McAlsbury, a uh, very good friend of yours in 2014. Uh, I understand you were back at Mission Control. This you know, this could have been a flight you were piloting on or co-piloting. Um, and, and he made a pretty critical human mistake, uh, that, that ended up, you know, destroying the aircraft. Uh, he was killed. Um, the, the other, the other pilot was miraculously uh, came down under parachute and he, he lived. Um, but the experts have said that, that these projects that you guys are undertaking are irresponsibly risky, um, and, uh, and you say in the article that the rocket you're flying is, is one of the most fearsome things you've piloted in, in over 40 years and, and you've piloted a lot. Um, is the, is the risk worth it? Is, you know, is, is taking rich people up into space a worthy objective? Is launching a paraglider worth it, Gavin? Yes, it is. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I bet anybody that's been paragliding or hang gliding for a long time, like 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 we have, has asked themselves that every once in a while when sure. somebody they know gets badly hurt or, or worse. And uh, you know, I, I have certainly on the on both the hang gliding and paragliding side taken a step back a bit for a while, then. I end up missing it, and uh, it's a kind of flying I can't get anywhere else. So uh, no other flying fills that void. You know, there I'm not out to to commit suicide, but by the same token, um, you know, my father lived to be in his 90s, but he sure didn't have fun for a lot of those years. I'd, I'd much rather have quality of life and have fun, and and end up maybe dying because of it than you know. You know, it's a bell curve. If you really want to be safe, you could sit at home and, and be spoon-fed mush for all three meals. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, who wants that? <laughs> yeah. Now, as far as, you know, the talk about whether space flight is worth it, to me, it's like, oh, come on. I mean, that that's how that that's how the humankind how how the ra how the human race progresses. You need people to take these steps, uh, but you also need the majority to not take these steps. And I think it's built into us. Uh, you need a, a small percentage of people that are not satisfied with the status quo. They're not satisfied staying in the box, or they're not satisfied looking within the horizon or you know they have to get on the they have to get on the ships and sail out beyond 
where they can't see and keep on going into the unknown. And that is how the human race, you know, advances to the next thing, discovers new worlds, new trade routes, and everybody benefits from that. But it's risky. You can't have everybody doing it or else you could have, you know, there's no, no doubt voyagers have and explorers have a, you know, uh, it's more risk mm. than the standard person. So if everybody does that, it's probably not the, the best thing for the human race. They need, you need the majority that stay behind. And then, and then after the explorers can go out and set foot somewhere else and establish things can open it up for the, the masses. And to me, that's what space flight is. And, you know, I, I get tired of the arguments about, oh, you know, we haven't, solved poverty on earth you know if you look at the amount of money we spend on space flight it, it, it's it's a token amount compared to how much money is spent on other stuff and you know we we have to address poverty we have to address other things we have to address our environment but we could throw all the money at all those things and and it wouldn't solve them we just need to work at them in the it's like everything's a compromise and uh so I feel that, uh, you know, and people will say, why are we doing suborbital tourism? It's just a, a flash in the pants. Well, it, you never know what it will open up for the next generation. Mm. You know, it's like a, our $250,000 ticket price is in modern dollars equivalent to a first class airline ticket was in the uh, late 20s, early 30s for flying across the Atlantic. So, um, and obviously now that's come, become commonplace and everybody flies. So you, you never know what, where it will take you. But I, uh, I believe that pushing a boundary is very important for mankind. Yeah, well, heck, I, 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 uh, I can't see me affording that price, the price of the ticket. But uh, you know, if the cost keeps coming down, I sure want my daughter in that ship. I mean, man, <laughs> what, what an experience! And yeah, your analogy to paragliding is 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 perfect. Um, okay, let's roll back the clock. You, uh, there's a great picture in the article of you hang gliding in 1974. You know, we just, I don't know if you caught that, but we just did this big kind of future and history of hang gliding podcast. And we interviewed a bunch of people that, you know, went all the way back before the Wright brothers and Otto Lilienthal and stuff. And, but I'm assuming that you, you credit getting into it from a national geographic article. I'm, I'm assuming that's the same article that, you know, just made this kind of like gold rush of, of hang gliding back in 1974. Um, talk talk about those those early days because it's you know it sounded like you know from when i heard this history uh from that was very eloquently told by uh bruce weaver at kitty hawk kites that it's you know it was it was a real exciting time in that sport yeah so it was a february 1972 issue national geographic and and uh yeah, it had an article on, on Apollo 15, which got my attention. And uh, somewhere in there, I was flipping through it, and it was a happy birthday Otto Lilienthal article about people baking bamboo batsos and Icarus twos and, and flying off small hills in California. And I was stunned by it. I'd never, never c contemplated such a thing. And suddenly it was like something that, you know, hey, maybe this was something I could do. And uh, it literally took me two years of pestering my dad and and threatening to build my own before he finally said, OK. I'll, and he went in 50 percent with me on my first uh, pliable moose 18 foot standard Rogallo, which I started flying in uh, yeah, May 74. 
and and uh, and did you just take to it right away? Was this was this the first thing you flew, or were you already into sailplanes and some of the other forms of flight then? Uh, it was definitely the first thing I flew. Now okay. we were uh, lower middle class, and uh, uh, it I did not take. So I I went out and you know I got an eighteen foot uh, standard Rogala, which was you know suited for a hundred and eighty pound pilot, and I was not. I was barely a hundred pounds and I, I just a skinny little kid. And it was way too big of a glider for me. I could barely balance the dang thing. Uh, the, the guy I bought it from was killed a week later uh, by a drunk driver on his motorcycle. So I was uh, pretty much self-taught for a number of months. And it took me, it took me a, a couple of months of going out every weekend and, getting blown backwards, uh, you know, and cartwheeling across the slopes and, and never flying, just trying to figure it out. And then it was funny because uh, I really believe in visualizing stuff. And one one day, literally, I was just thinking about it. And suddenly I, I just felt like, you know what, I think I can do it. I think the next time I go out, if the winds are good, I think I can fly it. And that was exactly what happened. Uh, it, it was a smooth wind went out and flew it and suddenly I was a pilot but you know a couple of years later I'm I'm you know doing summer job uh teaching for the Plowable Moose Company on weekends and you know I could teach somebody in a weekend would have taken me months to learn on my own right you guys were all instructors back then yeah <laughs> a buddy of mine here when he his first his first time paragliding he was there was a guy in a local shop that he, he had come in for some reason and got a local shop I'm like hey I'm, I'm going paragliding does anybody want to go and my buddy nate who's you know the jedi pilot now but this was back i think in the late 80s yeah yeah i'll go and he they went up and ran up a hill and he flew down and and the guy that had taken him said well okay now you know as much as I do. Have fun. <laughs> yeah, I listened to that podcast. That cracked me up. <laughs> um, your dad, you mentioned your dad. So I understand he was, is Mennonite. And uh, and, and while he, he really was sounded very supportive of your, your early fascination with flight and then eventually the stars, uh, he, he knew the only way in would be through the military, uh, certainly back then and really still the, the case now for the most part. Um, but that doesn't work with, with being a Mennonite. So, you know, I, I think a lot of kids, especially, you know, back then, you know, after Apollo and after Armstrong, you know, there, a lot of kids wanted to be a pilot or be an astronaut, but you actually became one. Uh, I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but what do you, what do you think, you know, you joined the military, you kind of went, went, went against your dad. You just, you, you really pursued this. You obviously stayed really persistent. What do you owe that to? There, you know, there's two quotes I remember from childhood. Uh, one was a sixth grade teacher that told me I could do whatever I wanted as long as I could accept the consequences of it. And then I remember, uh, you know, we had to go to being Mennonite, went to church every week which, you know, bored the crap out of me. But I remember a sermon where the, the pastor was talking about these uh, people that would come to the small uh, town and say, you know, how, how's this town? You know, is it a good town? And and the old man there would say, well, what, what would you think of your last town? And they go, oh, we really liked our last town. And he goes, yeah, I think you'll like this town. But if they didn't like their last town, he'd say, yeah, this may not be a good town for you. And it, basically the, the gist of that little story was uh, that, you know, life's kind of what you make it and you need to enjoy the journey. So 
I never, ever thought I could be an astronaut, but I thought the path towards it could be fun. And, you know, I, I never, never contemplated once growing up that I could be a fighter pilot. I fantasized about flying fighters, but I never once thought I had that possibility. And it just took basically being in college and seeing and uh, recruiters and suddenly, I, I, literally, I had a, my junior year, uh, I had a, my advisor at Kansas State University said, you know, as much as you're cutting class to go hang glide, have you considered the Air Force? <laughs> you know, so that, that actually planted the seed. And uh, I went and talked to the Air Force. They weren't the least bit interested in me, but the Marines were. And it kind of went from there. So I went in after college. But th the point of this is I really liked flight school. I really, I, you know, I thought I'd hate the military, but it, it could be a, you know, I could fake my way through it if I got to fly jets. And the reality was I enjoyed the military. They treated me well. I liked the life. I I actually believed in what I was doing, surprisingly. And it just it just kept on, doors kept on opening up, and I just kept on working towards them. And it, it's kind of a little bit like the the guy that's, you know, pretty old in life because if I would have known I was gonna live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> If I if I would have known I was going to get this far, I would have actually studied harder and, and maybe had you know t gotten a real engineering degree or something. But it's all down, so no regrets. <laughs> okay, so and I I'm I'm jumping to my own conclusion here, but this, I don't think this is that big of a jump. But I but. I hope I'm not wrong, but in, in 1985, you graduate from the Top Gun School. We've all seen that movie, of course. And and I don't know if it was after or before you graduated. It wasn't clear in the article, but you were flying on a patrol mission over the Sea of Japan. You spot a Russian bomber. You catch up to it. You, you flip upside down and you snap a photograph. Uh, I think pretty much everybody on Earth knows this scene. <laughs> And Top Gun, did they actually take, I mean, was that something that they put in the movie because of you? No, I I sincerely doubt it. Uh, it is kind of funny. I, I went to Top Gun in 85 and the movie came out a year later and suddenly my family was much more impressed that I had gone to Top Gun. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't mean much before the movie came out. I'm, but, stick, I'm sticking with it, man. I think that was you. <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is, and you probably won't believe it, is that was at night. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so they had to tone it down for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we join up on these, uh, when we do intercepts on the Russian airplanes, uh, it was interesting because, you know, that you'd go back, you'd flap close to the to the the turret where the, the tail gunner sat and he had these big teardrop shaped plexiglass windows and and you know some of my peers you know would flip them off and you know we're it was cold war and we hate them they hate us and i never really felt that way and i remember that i think the first time i joined up on one of them a guy flashed a, 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 what looked like a playboy centerfold at me you know <laughs> And so, so I just kind of laughed and felt we're each kind of doing our own job, you know, kind of checking on the other guy. And maybe they, we aren't that different. Mm. Uh, but they would kind of give you this, you know, flip their hands upside down, like flip upside down, fly upside down for us. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, we had been briefed ahead of time, do not do that because they want to take photographs of your missiles so they can really know, you know, maybe take a look at the serial numbers and, and figure out exactly what you're carrying and, and what version they are and get intelligence off of that. So I never flipped upside down during the daylight. Um, but one night it was just a, it was a cool, it was a, you know, it was a big uh, Russian back, uh, bear bomber, which has you know four engines and they're counter rotating props and it was just lumbering along and with its flashing lights and I don't know after after a while of escort and I just thought I wanted a picture of it so I rolled upside down over the top of it and took a picture looking down. Do you still have that picture? My ex-wife, I'm sure, has it somewhere in the garage, but I kind of lost that in the divorce. Man, you got to get that back. <laughs> that would be a good one to get back. That's amazing. Um, and so it, at this stage, would you call yourself a test pilot or was it not till, uh, is it not till you joined NASA in the late 80s? Is that, you know, to work, work with their timeline here with me a little bit. Well, I went to... Uh, Air Force test pilot school as a Marine exchange in 1989. And prior to going to test pilot school, I'd been what they call an operational test pilot, where you're taking the latest and greatest operational aircraft and really putting it through the ringer. You know, test pilots will go up there and, and make sure things fly right and they're stable and you have adequate control. And then an operational test pilot will go basically try to employ it in simulated combat missions, which is just about as much fun as you could have for three years. Um, so I guess it, technically I was a test pilot then because I was an operational test pilot. But in the sense that of most people think of test pilots, I'll, I'll consider it was after I went to a year long test pilot school. What would you credit? I mean, obviously, if you're, you know, you're, you you join the military, you go through Top Gun school, uh, you join, you you know, you 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 leave the military, get into NASA. I mean, obviously, people are identifying along the way that you're a really gifted pilot. Um, I I have theories about why you know some people get really good at paragliding or hang gliding really fast, and obviously, a bunch of that's talent, but obviously, a, a lot of it is you know, how you approach risk. Um, is that the same in, in flying airplanes? Is that, or, or maybe more directly, how do you, what do you credit your giftedness to? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I do know that before I, you know, before the Marines signed, you know, uh, they, they basically gave me a, a, a contract that if, if you join, we will send you to flight school. And what happens there is up to you. But bef before I could do that, I had to take, uh, you know, whatever, their equivalent of an SAT or something. But but it was, a, you know, it was a two-part test that took several hours. And, and a lot of it was just kind of like the IQ stuff, like an ACT or SAT. And then there were this this other part where you they'd show you uh, – just a, a basically like a stick drawing of an airplane in flight, and you know, caught it, whether it's coming at you, going away in a bank, whatever, with very rudimentary train behind you, behind it, and then you had like A, B, C, D, E choices, which were again stick drawings of the views out the cockpit, you know, and and you're like, which 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 of the the five choices corresponded to that airplane, the scene that airplane was in. And they gave you, you know, way more than you're supposed to have time to, you know, to sit there and think about it and go, okay, let me see, he's coming at me, his right wing's down, 
Uh, so he's in the right turn. His nose is high. So he should be climbing. You know, you don't have time to do that. You just have to, you know, I guess ha- have instinct. Mm. And I finished that before the time was up. Mm. And and they were and then they you know graded it and I maxed out the score and they're like, "You're not a pilot, are you?" It's like, "No." You know, do you have any aviation experience? Like, well, I've been flying hang gliders for a few years. And they kind of laughed. Uh, but so, uh, you know, I don't I, I credit hang gliding with giving me that air sense, whether I had some kind of 3D sense before. I don't know. But um, I, I credit hang gliding with it, actually. And and did you show? I mean, that sounds a lot like Kahneman's. You know, like uh, you're you're the two. The, you're you're almost like your two brains. You have the fast side and the slow side. Do, do you like? It sounds like the you know the emotional intelligence, the the kind of gut instinct is what you're really strong with. Did, did you, but did you also do really well on the you know the multiple choice, the hard where you really got to think through. You know the ACTs, the SATs, that side of things too. Yeah, I was always a an above average. You know, because your your engineering student. background. Well, and, and I'm you know what it's more of a science background. I, I don't have an engineering degree, uh, but I've taken a lot of engine. I took a lot of engineering courses while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I mean, it's funny. I I, I took my uh, sophomore year in the the summer. I worked for a civil engineering company. I remember sitting in the in in a small office. We were doing draftsman stuff. You know, making uh, you know mechanical drawings with pencils and and. Uh, getting in a conversation with one of the employees there, you know, that, that was a real engineer and was probably in his late thirties about, I remember him saying, you know, I think I could, if we, if I stole an F-15, I bet I could fly. I, I might not be able to land it, but, you know, just fantasizing about flying fighters, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not, can't remember how I got on this. No, well, it, you're, Keep you going. know, just, uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I took a lot of engineering courses, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to fly. Uh, but didn't really have that path there. Never had any money to take lessons or anything. And, you know, hang gliding kind of got me into it. Huh. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how much of the hang gliding really built your instinct for that kind of thing. Isn't it fascinating? Um, oh, but, but what, what I was going to say was I, I, I was always, a you know, I, I, I'd say I was a smart student. I was always like a, an A or B, B student, uh, mainly, uh, B, because I didn't apply myself that hard. If I applied myself, I'd get A's. Uh, so I know I have some raw mental ability. Uh, and then I probably, I, I, honestly, I can probably think fast and think slow. You know, mm. it's probably a, a mix, right? Mm. So so late 80s, you, you jumped from the Marines uh, to NASA. And then, you know, we all remember this. It was headlines a lot. And in the 90s, you know, drones get really big, you know, funding for a lot of NASA disappears and a lot of the kind of the experimental stuff that I'm imagining was what you were working on. Uh, and in the late 90s, you 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 have to make a huge jump. You start flying commercially for United. Uh, you're selling mortgages. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and make a wild guess that this isn't exactly where you saw your life going back then. That were those kind of dark times or <laughs> am I being too dramatic? Uh, so, you know, I'd left NASA. I mean, I, I could have stayed there and kept on flying, but it was, uh, it wasn't rewarding. Uh, cause all the, all the cool tests, I had flown, you know, the SR-71, I'd 
gotten towed in an F-106 on a thousand-foot rope behind a C-141. I'd done some weird stuff. I'd done a lot of uh, thrust vectoring flights in a, in a unique F-18 and done a lot of supersonic laminar flow stuff in a very highly modified F-16 above 60,000 feet. And then suddenly all those projects went away. But it wasn't like we got rid of airplanes. At the time, I could still go out and fly, but I just... And my wife at the time was never satisfied, and, and uh, she really wanted to move further away from the desert. So it's like, well, Christ, I, I, can't, I already lived an hour away. I didn't want to spend all my life in a car commuting. So it was all of that where it kind of made me think, well, you know, if we're not really doing much test flying, maybe maybe I should just go be an airline pilot because then we can move, live where we want, and maybe I can provide that way. And, of course, you know, that was right before 9-11, and after 9-11, I was – didn't have much, you know, longevity. So I knew I was going to eventually get furloughed. And I started looking at ways to, you know, bring food to the table. And that's where the, I knew somebody that was making a lot of money in the mortgage business. Of course, it was at the height of the market. And so I got in, you know, about the time the bubble burst. And it was, it was a dark time because I, my salary, my starting salary at United was below my mortgage payment let alone what you have to do for, you know, a family of, of five after that. So, um, it, uh, you know, I was working hard on mortgages and and was somehow then suddenly was offered a chance to go active duty in the Air Force, which was unique because I had been mar- a Marine before, um, but it all worked out. Yeah, and then, and then so you go to Iraq in 2003, but uh, dig into that a little bit. I mean, how do, how do you, at that stage in your life you're flying commercially you're doing these mortgages what what is it just a buddy that i mean how did they how they still know you were out there how'd you get the invite to go do that so i was uh doing military reserve duty as a uh air force uh, reservist uh and i was teaching at the test pilot school and flying the f8 uh f16 and the t38 and so it was after 9 11 where Suddenly, now the the active duty guys need to go to war and and uh, need to go to other stuff. Where, uh, you know, I guess if you're you know if you're active duty, you you it's not like you're a warmonger, but that's what you've been training for. So that's what you probably want to go do, support your country. And I think that left a vacuum in the schools, and that's where they you know I was a part timeist there on the side making ends meet and, and teaching. And I obviously had a pretty good resume being a former NASA pilot. Uh, so they said they saw the opportunity to, to recall me to active duty and send me to the, the test pilot school as, an, as a full-time instructor. And that's what I did. Um, you know, the small world thing, I don't know if you ever heard of Roy Haggard. He's, you know, one of the great inventors of the, you know, the first real double surface hang glider, the mm-hmm. infamous comet in the 1980s that, sure. totally changed hang gliding. Uh, He called me up and and he was uh, VP of a company that was contracted by NASA to do mid-air retrieval of the Genesis spacecraft when it came back from a a multiple year-long mission to collect uh, basically stardust. And uh, it was supposed to be, you know, come back down deploy a parafoil and be caught in midair by a par- by a, a helicopter and they had two helicopters and they wanted somebody to be a mission commander that they felt had experience with national asset test programs 
but was also familiar with perforals, and somehow I came to mind. So, and the Air Force like agreed to that as long as you know it didn't cost the Air Force anything. So, uh, they'd pay for my money to come out and train up, and and it was fine. And, and then it kind of came out that they did a study and. You know, they're supposed to catch the parafoil in midair, and it's pr- pretty funny. They're supposed to fly it to, you know, a, a white room, you know, at Dugway Proving Grounds where all the secret germ warfare is done and biological warfare. They have the really unique facilities there, and they're going to hover over this building, and, you know, the trap roof trap door opens up, and they lower it in, and, and it never touches ground or human hands. This, you know, priceless uh you know, payload. So, well, anyway, it comes out that even though, though they've gotten very accurate, uh, as opposed to where historically that there were some wind profiles where, you know, once they did the fu- retro rocket fire or, or the, the actual, the, the final burn correction, uh, while the spacecraft was a couple weeks out, it was going to land at this time on this date. And it could potentially be strong winds or something. They were going to do their best weather forecasting, but there was a chance that if the winds were strong, that the helicopter could not actually make it back with just, you know, with this paraglider and payload flailing behind it. It was just too much drag. So they, they had to come up with a way to reduce the drag. And it literally was a guy repelling out of the helicopter and sliding like a big fabric condom or like a, a concertina bag, uh, you know, down over the paraglider, over the over the parachute, while the helicopter kept on trucking at 60 miles per hour. So Haggard calls me up, he's explaining this all to me. And, you know, there's, there's three people on the helicopter. There's a helicopter pilot, there's the guy that operates the winch, and then there's the mission commander, payload commander. So, you know, there's only one person that can repel out. So he's like... <laughs> do you think you can do this? I was like, well, you know, yeah, I can do that. And he go, oh, come on down. So, you know, two days later, I'm down there at Lake Elsinore repelling out of a helicopter to show I can do this. And <laughs> they got to make a movie about you, man. <laughs> so awesome. so we're, we're flying along 2000 feet high and I, I repel out and I, and I sleeve this thing, you know, it's a dummy payload. And, you know, somehow it gets back to the air force general. I was like, what? You know, we didn't sign up for this. What the hell are you doing? And, and so not only did they cancel my participation in the program, I was suddenly at the top of the list to be sent to Iraq on a non-flying billet. <laughs> You're like, come on, man. I'm just catching stardust. Come on. <laughs> so, 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 yes, yeah, so I went to Iraq for a few months. But, but, but even that had the silver lining. That's funny how it all works out. Yeah, I was going to say, so, I mean, you, you go to Iraq and uh, you're sitting in, is this true? You're sitting in one of Saddam Hussein's former palaces in 2004 and you uh, you flip on the TV and you watch Bert Rutan's, uh, which, you know, everybody that knows anything about f- flying knows about Bert. Uh, you, you watch Spaceship One, so the predecessor to the one you're using now, go 62 miles above the earth. Uh, is that true? Is that what, is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah, that is true. So, uh, you know, I had seen them, I'd seen some of the earlier test flights that hadn't gone to space, but I'd seen two where they fired the rocket, one from my backyard at Edwards Air Force Base, another one where I just got a little bit of intel, intelligence about it, and had driven out on the road underneath the profile and watched them. So I was amazed by the, the program. 
you know, I'd, I'd been a finalist for NASA astronaut a couple of times, but, you know, I hadn't, hadn't been picked and I, and I was okay with that. To me, it's, it's like, you know, getting picked to be Miss America. You can have 50 beautiful, talented women, but you can't expect you're going to be the one picked. And, you know, if they're only picking four pilot astronauts, I could never expect that I'd be in one of the top four. So I was, I, I could, I was fine with not getting picked, but then when suddenly they unveil spaceship one, I was jealous as hell. And, uh, very interested in the program, but yeah, so, but their actual X prize flight where they went into space, I was sitting in a, in a, in a former Saddam's palace, watching it on CNN and it was amazing. Wow. That, and it must've been, I mean, that really changed the trajectory of your life, right? The, the, watching them. Well, I, I was, well, I, I mean, was, you didn't know it yeah, at the time. I, did. But... I mean, I, I was very interested in it then. And, and, you know, on their winning flight, uh, Branson was already sponsoring them a little bit and had a Virgin Galactic sticker on the side. And they were talking about commercial operations. I do want to tell you another story, though, that I think you'll enjoy was at the same time I was in Iraq, that Genesis spacecraft came back for reentry. So, so those are the two things I watched. I watched Spaceship One go up into space. And I also, you know, dialed in and watched the Genesis come back to see how Rory Haggard would catch this thing in midair. And, and uh, it just pummeled in the ground. The parachutes never opened. So, yeah, it's, uh, I was, I was, I had to do some research on that because I, I'd forgotten that. So the whole, the whole hanging out of the helicopter on the line and putting the, putting the concertina bag over it didn't work. Well, it never happened because they, never got they had it. installed that they had some accelerometers on the spaceship that was, that was supposed to detect reentry deceleration, and they were installed backwards. So they they never felt like they had decelerated in the atmosphere. Uh, so they never triggered the parachute. So the 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 satellite that could never touch the ground smashed into it. You know, at many hundreds of miles per hour. So I saw this happen, and I had Roy Haggard's cell phone number, and I had a satellite phone, and I knew he wouldn't answer because he was on the helicopter. But I, I immediately called him, got his voicemail, and, and left him a message that, you know, I was sorry I saw what happened, but if I was on the helicopter, I would have still caught it. <laughs> Don't make that mistake again, man. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay, so uh, four deployments in Iraq, and uh, you're over there till 2007. You win the Bobby Bond Aviator Award. Uh, so I'm assuming you're doing. Uh, I mean, what 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 are you doing in Iraq? Then are you are you you said in the beginning you weren't flying, but are you flying? Yeah. So th so that first one was supposed to be a you know, you're you're whatever. It's a non-flying assignment. You're doing liaison between the army and the Iraqis and the air force. And basically it's a big waste of time, but somewhere in there, the Iraqis are starting up their own air force, which we're helping them with. And I get, you know, I'm, I'm reporting on that. And, and the people in charge of it is actually a, a, a British Colonel and uh, or Commodore, and, and he gives me shit one day over the phone. And says, you know, if you really want to help, you know, come figure out how we can get this coordinated. You know, do something instead of just sitting on your ass and and trying to get tidbits of information to put out in a daily report. Uh, I knew I didn't would not have Air Force approval for that, 
So I actually did that on my way out of the country. And I ended up flying with them. And uh, so then they kind of knew me, but I was on my way out of the country to go back to the States. And then uh, they had an accident that, you know, uh, one of the airplanes went in and it's an Iraqi aircraft and you, you think that's bad enough. And then they, you know, in the wreckage, it's, you know, one Iraqi, but it's a Air Force Special Operations Command pilot and they've got four special operators troops in the back. And so a lot of American deaths, deaths, these were, this pilot was highly qualified. And so suddenly it's like, okay, where do these aircraft come from and are they airworthy and should they be flying them? And suddenly it was like, okay, we have to send a real test pilot over there to do a real quick assessment and he needs to be over there in two weeks. And, oh, by the way, Forger, it's you. So, and in the end, the, the, that Bobby Bond Award is a is basically the Air Force Test Pilot of the Year Award, and I got awarded that for that for that kind of work, and then that opened up a, another job for me. And that's when you got back. Yeah, so I would go over there for a few weeks at a time, um, and you know, evaluate stuff and tell them what needed to be done, and and then you know, in, in the end, they shipped a couple of the airplanes back to the U.S., we modified them, and then we made kits to go back over there and uh, modify the other ones. Uh, uh, my recommendation was that they should not fly in period, that they were not airworthy, but that was not the right answer. So they did that, and when they went over and modified the other ones, by that time, uh, that was other people that I trained, and they went over and did it, and they flew a few flights, and the guy almost died, and then they shut the program down, and you're right. Yeah. So 2007, you come back and, uh, you don't, you know, you don't, you, you've, you, you've been paragliding all the way back in the nineties, but it sounds like you kind of get back into flying, you're back in the desert. Um, but you're, you know, I, I guess maybe cause you'd been gone a lot or for whatever reasons, uh, it sounds like your, your family life starts getting pretty, pretty rugged. Well, I was, I was living in Vegas and, uh, I don't know. I mean, that last year I got one, I got three kids. One had graduated from college and was, you know, not living at home. Uh, another one was off to college, not living at home. And the third one was in her senior year at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So it wasn't like they were young kids. But uh, yeah, at that time I was, I was off working and sometimes I'd be gone for a week and back on the weekends because of the, the job I was doing. Um, but that didn't actually seem like a stressful thing. I, I mean, the stressful thing was my wife and I didn't get along and we had never really gotten along. Mm. And, uh, then I ended up breaking my back paragliding and that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back with her, yeah. which is probably a good thing for me. Yeah, literally the, uh, well, okay, let's, let's jump to paragliding then. So tell me about the accident and, um, you you wrote me a, a an interesting note about reserves because was this your third one? No, that was my second reserve deployment. Okay. Yeah. So talk about paragliding. I'm living in Vegas. Uh, not flying very. I mean, actually, I was hardly flying at all. The first time I'd gone out and flown a Gene, I saw a midair and and uh, 
I, I thought the guy would have died. He, he was totally cascading all the way down, exactly out of phase with the glider. It was getting each oscillation was getting worse and worse until he he smacked flat on his back into a horrible lava field. You know, and I, I raced over there with another guy, and, and he was just bruised. I, I was amazed when they let him out of the hospital that night. But I, I only flew a couple of times with those guys, and uh, and I tended to fly when I go other places. You know, I'd go to go to uh, Salt Lake City and fly Point of the Mountain or something, but not very regularly. So here it was. I really wanted to fly cross-country uh, along the uh, Red Mountains, and I felt like summer in Vegas was too dangerous. So I wanted to go. I decided, hey, this was the last weekend I was going to try. No, I had never tried before, but uh, I, was gonna, I really wanted to fly cross-country. And uh, so... I wanted to go on a Saturday, and my wife really wanted me to do something else that day, so I agreed. And I didn't bother checking the weather the next day, but went and uh, towed up. And and it was just, I mean, before I towed up, I could see dust devils in the distance where they they cross. We were towing on a dry lake bed, and you could see dust devils with really tight cores. And you know, they disappear once they left the lake bed, but you know that they didn't stop. You just couldn't see them. And I ended up just flying a few miles going, uh, I was flying with Tony Lang and, and, you know, we would alternate who was ahead and, and, and the other guy would get low and then one guy would catch a thermal and get up and the other guy would run there. And now I was out in front and I started getting low and I got down to, you know, uh, 350 feet. And I had this rule of thumb that, you know, if I'm below 400 feet over inhospitable terrain, you know, hard rocks and stuff. And, and I'm not going to thermal. Uh, so I set up to land on the road and flew into a invisible dust devil. And, you know, at first it was uh, pretty passive. I, I had the biggest collapse of my life. I mean, 70% of the wing was gone, but it was, it did not put me in a big turn or anything. It was just gone. And I, I pumped it out. I felt like I knew where the, the bad air was. It immediately reopened. I started to turn away. And then I had a more dramatic, a smaller collapse. It was much more dramatic. And it just immediately, immediately went in an auto rotation. And uh, I'd never been in an SIV then. I mean, it, to me, it kind of was, felt like a sap. Glider's going one way, I'm going another way. I was below 100 meters. I just immediately threw my chute. Even though at the time, I thought, you know, I'm going to recover this thing. But my rule of thumb is if you're out of control below 100 meters, throw your chute. Uh, and I'd done that once before in my life. And the moment, you know, I, when I threw the chute then, I remember thinking, this is unnecessary. I would, I know I would have recovered this, but, but I, but I've got this rule of thumb and I'm going to live by it. And as I was throwing the chute the first time, I got ground rushed. I remember thinking, damn, I'm really glad I'm, or, I'm already in the process of this. And it opened up and I got a half a swing and landed totally fine. And it, and it really brought home that I had made the right decision. So here I am again. And, uh, uh, still thinking it was stupid. I shouldn't be doing it. And I throw the parachute, and unlike the first time I threw it, it didn't open right away. And I was in this other rotation. I was just hanging limp in the middle of the rotation. But I'd already thrown it, so instead of trying to work on the glider, I got to work. I don't want the parachute opening sometime later. So I, I'm jerking on the bridle, trying to get it open, and then suddenly the the glider like comes out of its spin. And, you know, when a glider comes out of its spin, it's going to want to dive. And I was purposely not looking at the ground and uh, up until that point in time while I was trying to get the parachute open because I 
I didn't want to, you know, it wouldn't help matters. Uh, but suddenly, you know, I'm in a recovering from a spin. I'm at 60 feet above the ground in a hellacious dive, and I'm just barely get my hands on the brakes and start braking when I, you know, fly to the ground, maybe a 20 degree angle at 30 miles per hour. You know, if I would have been 15 feet higher, it would have just been a close call. 15 feet lower, it would have probably been dead. So, you know, in the end, I just piled in, you know, feet and butt first and and I broke my back, not from that, you know, the vertical impact impact, but the horizontal impact. I mean, I just basically got bent over like a jackknife, you know, over my, you know, my feet. And and that's what compressed my my spine so bad and, you know, broke the three vertebrae. If you if you gleaned in all your history and all your years of flying, are there are there um you you mentioned that, you know, this was this was like the rule and you were gonna live by it. Did did that come from your is that did that come from airplanes? I mean, did that come do you do you do you find that they work together? Do you have kind of similar protocols that uh that we that those of us who don't fly airplanes could learn from? <laughs> Yeah, I, and it, it totally came from airplanes, and and that was you know I, I started my military my operational career in the F four, and you know F fours are not known for great handling qualities, and if you got in a spin, you know you there's a chance you'd never recover, and in any case, if you were out of control below ten thousand feet, you were supposed to eject, and you know ten thousand feet above the ground is pretty dang high, especially when you have a you have an ejection seat where you can be sitting on the runway and you could pull that handle and you get a good parachute and you walk away from it. So to say, but if you're coming down fast in a spin at 10,000 feet, you know, that seems like a lot of altitude. And, uh, but yeah, everybody knew people that, you know, blew off the 10,000, you know, something happened to them. They tried to recover the airplane a little too long. And in the end they eject and they don't get a parachute because they're coming down so fast and they die. And uh, so the bottom line was, you know, if you wait until you think, oh, I've really got to pull the handle now. And and what, what makes people do that is this sense of ground rush. There's some altitude and speeds that that combination, suddenly you get this sense of ground rush and you, you know, oh, I've got I, I, I can't fix this. I need to eject. I need to throw a parachute. And that's where I came up with the basically 100 meters. Um, you know, if to me, my rule of thumb was if I've been out of control for a while, you know, like I've been trying to fix a cascade or something, and this has never happened to me. But if it did, there's no reason that there's, you know, at a 400 feet, I'm going to throw the reserve no later than that because, you know, hey, you, you tried. But if I'm out of control below that, you know, if I'm flying along if, at, and I'm less than at 350 and I go out of control, I'm going to instantly throw a parachute if it's anything other than momentary and that that's the thing where it can be embarrassing right because you know maybe you would have flown out of it you know the important thing is to learn how to actively fly so you don't have that and the other thing i do is just don't put yourself in that situation it's uh you know i just try not to put all my eggs in one basket you know there's certainly i'll go out and fly crestline or marshall on a good day and you take off and yeah I'll start thermaling below 300 feet on that initial climb out because it's a relatively smooth site. Smooth I'm there on a good day or something. It's not 
if not too bumpy, I feel that's acceptable. I'm, I'm taking this small window of time, one thermal to get up. But then after that, I really try to honor that rule. Mm-hmm. Now, now, if I'm not thermaling, if it's just a, you know, a glass off day, sure, I'll fly around with my butt skimming off the, mm-hmm. off the bushes. But, uh, you know, it's a risk versus reward thing and to leave yourself an out. Yeah. And I think that whole thing of like, you know, potentially being embarrassed, you know, who cares? It's your life. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I, but, 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 but going with that too is I won't, you know, I always want to leave, have two outs, you know, the parachute's one out, yeah. but if it's over an area full of power lines or it's over someplace where you all drowned or die, if you or it's just filled with jagged rocks and, and you'll probably get seriously injured coming down over a par- in a parachute. Well, then I'll, then you probably, that's not a real out then. So yeah. I'll, I'll get myself even more altitude then. We, we've done a couple shows too, uh, you know, I mean, a, a lot of paragliders, most, if, if you fly a long time or we'll have reserve stories, but um, you know, there's also the whole odds of the first one not working. Um, you know, now in competitions, you know, it's mandatory to carry two reserves. And, you know, so I think that that starts coming into play big time when you're, if you're really in a proper like auto rotation, situation, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to throw your reserve right in your wing. And, and so, you know, you've, you've either got to be, you know, really, really heads up or, you know, it's kind of nice to have that second one, but if you've got the second one, that takes time and you're, you're, you're burning altitude. So it's, yeah, they, we, there's, you got to be, you got to be heads up when it comes to that. And there's, you know, there, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no hard rule. There's, you know, there are times where it's way more appropriate to throw it when you've got, you know, over a thousand feet of, of altitude. Yeah. You might need it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, there's plenty of YouTube videos where, you know, people survive and they put the GoPro video up there, but you can see they're coming down. They, they've got something bad going on and, but you don't get this sense, uh, you know, it, the ground's not there. They don't have, mm. you don't have ground rush, but suddenly you get ground rush. They throw the reserve and they hit before it opens. And maybe they, maybe they don't die because there's a proper slope and they got lucky. But I, I think there's just tons of examples that you cannot rely on ground rush. If you, if you, if you do, it will be too, it's late. too late. Yeah. That's a yeah, great point. Um, there's a, there's a sentence in the, in the, in the article that I want to explore with you, uh, this, this comes from, let's see, another pilot. You begin flying with Peter Siebold, who was the co-pilot. I'm not sure if that's the right terminology, uh, with your buddy, Mike Alsbury, when they have their, their, their tragic accident. Uh, he's the one that that miraculously escapes. Um, but the, the sentence that I want to explore with you is it's for aviators, confidence in an asset Wait, confidence is an asset, but arrogance is a liability. As Chuck Yeager wrote in his memoir, arrogance got more pilots in trouble than faulty equipment. Can we just stick on that for, you know, expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so that statement is, is you know, research done by the, the reporter, the author, Nick Schmittle. Uh I don't argue with it. I agree with it. I mean... If if uh, arrogance, you know, it can be a bad thing. I, but honestly, I mean, I think, you know, to be a, you have to have some level of confidence to want to fly paragliders. If, if you're too timid, you're not going to pull the glider up with authority when you go to launch. You're, you know, 
too timid is actually more dangerous. Mm. But of course, overly confident is dangerous too. Uh, so some level of confidence, it, it, confidence, I think, is very important. Uh, I guess what defines arrogance, I don't know. I, honestly, I, I read that about Chuck Yeager, and I think that's kind of funny because I personally think he's been pretty arrogant. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, to air dirty laundry, I, I think that the scene in the uh, in the right stuff where you know he ejects at, at the end uh, in the uh rocket powered you know nf-104 i mean he lost that airplane because of his arrogance they don't show that in the right stuff but mm. in my in my view and and experts that are around at the time it was his arrogance that cost that lost the airplane but that doesn't mean that any of us can't goof up but sure. it's something that we should be aware of sure yeah um, okay. So, you know, the, the uh, about 10 years ago, you, you start doing a lot of flights for scaled composites and uh, scaled composites is, as I understand it is the, is the company kind of manufacturing and engineering behind Virgin Galactic, the Virgin's like the client. Huh? And, um, imagine there's, there's been a harrowing flight or two there. Is there, I, you know, I, I want to be sensitive to, uh, what you can and can't say, but the, uh, you know, there, or maybe not even a, a virgin flight, but can you, can you recount, um, you know, a, a flight uh, that was like, woof, that was exciting. Yeah. I mean, we had the, uh, the 16th glide flight on spaceship two on, on the very first one that, that scaled built when we were doing a flight test for virgin, it was supposed to be, a uh, the high speed dive to go the fastest speed that we planned to go. It was supposed to be the last flight prior to, to put the rocket motor in and lighten the rocket motor. So we were supposed to accelerate to transonic speeds, which in a stubby low L over D glider requires a very aggressive dive uh, the moment you release. And we had, we had trained for that for a long time. I knew what settings to use and what to do. And uh, the moment we released, the aircraft, the you know, spaceship nose pitched down like it was supposed to, but it never stopped pitching down. And uh, I mean, that's flight test for you. The the horizontal stabilizers were stalled at a negative angle of attack, so it was like they weren't even there, and we were already at a negative angle of attack. So it just wanted to keep on diving and tuck under, which is what it did. So within a couple of seconds, it tucked under, and then it just immediately went into an, an inverted spin. Uh, so that was obviously nothing that we planned for, and it was pretty eye-watering. And uh, <laughs> It's funny, the, the things that go through your mind, I, I remember as it was happening, I remember thinking, I'm going to be the pilot in command that commands a bailout from Richard Branson's, you know, <laughs> Billion dollar program. I'm going to be the one that crashes this thing in the desert. Uh, but you know, <laughs> luckily, luckily we we recovered from the spin and flew it back. But describe. I, I don't because I don't either. But I think a lot of people are, are scratching their heads. What does transonic mean, and why is it the Bermuda Triangle of airspeed? So transonic, uh, you know, is, is generally defined as between eight-tenths the speed of sound and 1.2 times the speed of sound, so 0.8 Mach to 1.2 Mach. And it's just really hard 
stuff really changes and the effects there are it's tough to it's tough to predict them you know wind tunnels and computer fluid computational fluid dynamics are great below 0.8 it's you know we have great flutter programs for subsonic and the same is true for supersonic above 1.2 mach uh, there's great uh, computational fluid dynamics for, uh, for for supersonic but in the transonic things happen strangely you know different parts of the wing behave differently or react at a different time in the tail and uh, so both on the flutter side the aerodynamic stability and control side you know we do our best to try to predict there but um there's always some unknown there uh and anyway when and how and how that actually happens and 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 the intricacies of that are are tough so when it's very very tough to do that in a low L over D glider to, to train for that. If you take spaceship, you know, you're either coming downhill really fast or else you're accelerating extremely fast. There's no, you can't, you know, I can go up in an F-16 and you can tell me hold 0.88 Mach plus or minus 0.02 Mach and I can do that. But you can't in spaceship. I mean, it, you you can try to do it in a really steep dive, but then you're flying through wind shears and it's, and just, Different temperature profiles would change Mach by a few hundred. So it's very tough to, to, to do in glide flight testing, and you cannot do it under powered flight testing. Wow, fascinating. So like on this this flight that you just did on Thursday, when you're at Mach 2.9, is that kind of like when you're like, yeah, man, this is cool. We're, this is all good. It's it's more that kind of getting to there and coming back down through there. Is that where you're still – does it still kind of get your hackles up? Yeah, I, you know, I've gone through the transonic on acceleration enough that I'm, I know what to expect, and it's pretty good. Uh, you know, we're still, you know, we're always there's little effects of trim schedules or center of gravity that can affect that transonic pitch up or even release altitude. This time we, we released a few thousand feet lower than we've ever released before. And that was specifically something that I and the, the flight test department was trying to push as a way to kind of get the boundaries of stability and control. Uh, I don't think operational we want to release that low, but uh, I thought it was important to do on this flight, and it worked out pretty well. Uh, so, you know, we're learning from it. Uh, so, uh, but the once it was, you know, above Mach 2, and it just seemed to only be getting better. And, I, yeah, I would have loved to run the rocket motor even longer, but this is a big step for us. And, you know, we're taking the aircraft aerodynamically to speeds that had never gone before. And that also means we're going to significant heating that, you know, we, we didn't want to just run full duration and see what we got. We wanted to take a big step, come back and see, uh, make sure that all the thermal protective system, fun, you know, worked as, as designed so that uh, we didn't have any hot spots. And some of that you can't tell until after flight. Mark, when you, when you, uh, you know, it sounds like to me, I mean, these test flights don't happen every day. You know, it could be months and months and months and in, in some cases years, like after, after Mike was, was killed. Um, how do you stay current? Cause it sounds like that's super important. And then tie that into maybe, is there a crossover with paragliding there too? Because we're always talking about that. You know, you, you, if you only fly a few times a year, you're, you're your own worst enemy. 
Yeah, we have an excellent simulator. It, it flies like the real vehicle. It's got nice visuals. I think that's the most important thing that I can fly day in, day out. And it's it's integrated, you know, it's integrated with the control room once a week. Uh, you know, we do these integrated simulations where we have we have a, a couple of people that sit on the console station down the simulator behind you. So you can't see what they're doing. And we call them mayhem because they're they're giving you emergencies. They can be very subtle, small emergencies that you'd never notice unless you really flip through all the pages on the TV screens, on the multifunction displays, but you can't do that because you're too busy flying. Uh, but they can see them up in the control room and they, they have to decide when to speak up and tell you to do something. Or they can be more complex emergencies where you know we get a master caution or a master warning light and, and have to deal with it. Or they can be stuff that is extremely severe and you just you know don't have time to pull out a checklist. You have to react instantly and uh, through memorized procedures. So they can give us all of that. And, and it's, it's great where we're, we are, you know, by the time I flew a couple of days ago, I was as trained as I could possibly have been. Uh, but that's good for that. But it can't simulate the unbelievable feeling of having 70,000 pounds of thrust behind you when you weigh 30,000 pounds and you're, you know, you're accelerating about three times the force of gravity. It's a catapult shot uh, off an aircraft carrier, but instead of stopping after a second and a half, it's going on for a minute. And you are very actively flying and doing stuff the whole time. It's a, it's a pretty bizarre feeling. It's to me, it's, it's almost like, you know, I mean, I joke, uh, it's, it's like lassoing your, your feet together, you know, with a hundred foot rope to the horse and then smacking the horse in the ass and having it start galloping and then having you do stuff, you know, it's, you, you're, you are seriously off to the races and you have to perform. And, and you, that one is really tough to, to train for, you know, we go to a centrifuge a couple of times a year. And so we can simulate that kind of acceleration, but it's, it's not a flight simulator where, you know, I'll, I'll have recorded displays on like a Surface Pro and we'll practice the procedures and we'll act like we're flying. We'll make the calls. And, and that's been a really good thing for us because we've changed some of our procedures because of that. But nothing can truly simulate it like, a, like the real flight can. And that's kind of true for paragliding. I mean, you, you can't go out and simulate it that well. You just kind of have to go out and do it. What what happened to Mike? Is it you know from in reading about the accident, um, it sounded like it was you know incredibly traumatic for you. You were in mission control, and he he said something uh, that you immediately were like, "What? What the hell? No, stop!" And it was already too late. Um, why? What happened to his mind there? Somebody that's that trained, it's done it that many times. I mean, I guess we're just guessing, but what's your theory? Yeah, I think I got a pretty good idea. So, I mean, every everybody can make mistake. And uh, yeah, that was the fourth powered flight. And I'd flown in the left seat on the first two, and I was on the right seat on the third one, but I was on the right seat as an instructor pilot. Uh, so, I was very familiar with them. And the thing you're doing is, you know, you're always trying to be a step ahead. What's coming next? And, you know, we've got a flight. We have flight cards. And, you know, normal flight cards, you have one card for each maneuver. 
And that's kind of how it is. We have the stack of cards, but for the actual part where you drop and you release, everything, all the, all those test points are in shorthand on the single card because you, you can't fly a spaceship and be flipping cards and casually doing stuff. But you are, you are off to the races. And, you know, in, in my view, he was thinking about what came next. And, you know, he made the 0.8 buck call, which was a required call that I'd come up with after the first flight. Uh, and uh, I'd come up with that because I thought it was a good way for the co-pilot to to be in the loop and and to make sure the pilot knew basically that transonic was just about to happen because uh, it, it changes transonically for a few seconds. So by saying 0.8 mock, you're like, OK, everybody's ready for this. And then right after that it does this little pitching maneuver and then you're supersonic and then you start trimming. Uh, so there's stuff to do, but then in that case uh, on that version of the spaceship, within a few seconds after that, you were supposed to unlock the feather. But by that time you're doing Mach 1.4 and that's perfectly safe. I mean, I actually, you know, we could unlock the feather down at 1.2. We did that on my first flight for, for a reason. Uh, it's flight test, but he made the 0.8 mock call and his next action was supposed to be at 1.4 Mach, where he unlocked where he unlocked the feather. And I think he just looked ahead and had a brain fart, and and you know skipped a page in the head and all. And to, and to me, the the big, the real sad point of that is he said it very plainly. I heard it in the control room. I was sitting in the back of the control room. I was not the test conductor. Uh, I heard it very plainly. Uh, but it was not heard by Pete, and, you know, in the same cockpit with them, and they were kind of busy doing other stuff. And and to me, that's the the biggest sad point about it all is, you know, you got two people in there, so that if one person says something that isn't right, maybe the other person can stop. So, but and, it, and Peter missed Peter missed the workout. Peter missed what you heard. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, and, and there were a couple other. Uh, extenuating circumstances too that I think contributed to it that, you know, I wasn't happy that they, they did that way or, but, you know, hopefully we can, we learn from it and, you know, it's easy to, to say, Hey, that you should have had a, it shouldn't have been possible to do that. But, you know, it's, I would expect that when the spaceship would have been operational, we would have more safety mechanisms in place but it's common not to do that in early flight tests because uh it adds complexity and in some ways can make things more dangerous uh but you know now we do have such a thing and it's it's kind of like the equivalent i remember in the 80s and early 90s i think it started with like a sob 5000 but there there are other cars where people would start the ignition put it in gear and they'd swear that they were stepping on the brake as hard as they could and the brake wasn't doing anything and the car was just accelerating. And, you know, a couple of seconds later, they already ran into something in the parking lot. Mm. And, but, you know, you wouldn't see any, you know, the investigators would go in there and they wouldn't see any signs of anything wrong with the brakes. And there were, the 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 marks looked more like it was a, a acceleration the whole time. And, you know, nobody would ever take blame for it. But in the end, they put in what all cars have now. You can't take the you can't take the gear shift out of park if your foot's not on the brake. 
because in the reality, they thought they had their foot on the brake. It was on the accelerator. So when things start moving, they just push harder on the brake, which is really an accelerator. And after a couple of seconds, it's over with. Yeah. And we kind of we did the same thing where now you cannot unlock the feather unless uh, – all the conditions for for it to be, you know, there's there's regions where it's unsafe to do that, and you basically have to have all the conditions for safety met before it will be allowed to electronically unlock. I think probably everybody listening who's learned how to ride a motorcycle has done that at some point. <laughs> you know, when, yeah, when you're yeah, first exactly. learning, you always hit the you always hit the gas when you're trying to hit the brake. You know, oh God! Hopefully, it doesn't go too bad. Um, yeah, and that's that's unusual human factors, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, if if motorcycles were just being invented now, the equivalent of the test pods would, would never approve that, it, it, because they'd say, "Hey, there is a percentage of time where somebody will mess this up, right. and it can have really bad consequences." So they would never invent a motorcycle like that now, just like they would never invent a tail drag or airplane now. But historically, people learned to do that, and you know, so. You, you know, it's there. Mm. How, how do we, I mean, this is maybe a reach to try to take it from flying, you know, from Mike's accident, flying a rocket ship that goes in Mach uh, to paragliding. But um, have you thought about it all? Like how to eliminate the brain farts in, in, in this slow sport? Because that's certainly one of the greatest killers for sure. You know, just, I mean, you hear that all the time after somebody has an accident, like, ah, oh, I just, man, I just, I just skipped that step. You know, I mean, how, how often has it happened? We just saw that hang glider not get clipped in in Switzerland. You know, the, the tandem guy, that, that video that went viral, you know, the, the tandem pilot forgot yeah. to clip him in. And, you know, so how do we, have you thought about that? So to me, I, I, nothing comes to mind of, of brain farts up and away. I can understand the brain farts on launch. You didn't, you didn't fasten your leg straps on the paraglider. You didn't hook in the hang glider, but do you know of accidents where people are just flying and had a brain fart? No, not really. Yeah. I think you're, I, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think you're kind of, you know, at that stage, you're really tuned in and it, and it you know, and, and, and like we talked about, it's not, you know, it's not gear failures then it's, you know, it's, it's like your thing, you know, you get in a dust devil and, and you either, you either act correctly or you don't. So I think one thing that has helped me is, you know, all those years I was a Marine pilot, there was a, a monthly magazine called approach magazine and the Navy is put out by the Navy and the Marine Corps. And there's just two Navy Marine squadrons. And there were always, there I was stories in there, you know, that for people to learn from, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. this happened to me. And I was, I was amazed how many of them began with, here I was flying along and I never thought this would happen to me. And then this is what happened. And, and my takeaway from that was, wow, how, why would you think it could never happen to you? Mm, you know, yeah. we're, we're, you know, to use a quote I, that's been attributed to me, we're not selling shoes at Sears, we're, we're flying fighter jets they crash on occasion it can't happen to you and if you don't think it can happen to you then you are more dangerous than the person that thinks it can happen to them i like that so yeah just remember all the time it can happen to you so so what i do i, I you know not to be morbid but i i always are i'm thinking of things that can go wrong and then chair flying how i will deal with it so i have never launched unhooked 
but it's like I've never landed with my gear up on an airplane, but I'm the last person that would laugh at somebody that did that. If somebody lands with the gear up, I will try to understand what led them to do that and how I can make sure that doesn't happen to me. I don't think I'm smarter than them. I realize, wow, that happened to another person. What was the situation? How do I keep that from happening to me? So even though I've never launched unhooked, I have certainly in my mind gone over what I would do if I launched unhooked and um, what I would do if I launched without my leg straps. Now, I well, the other thing I really try is, hey, when you think you're really ready to go, it's never that important that you run off. You know, let's make sure you're really ready to go. Mm. But you can still make that mistake. So, you know, I, I, I see that that tandem hang gliding video that, that you saw. And, and, I'm, and I'm kind of amazed by some of the comments uh, like, oh, he should have turned back in the hill and landed right away. It's like, come on. He was totally out of control. He was that, that instructor is fighting for his life as he's got, you know, his equivalent weight hanging from the control bar, which will put it in a dive, hanging on the left side of the control bar, which will put it in a left-hand turn, and he's just fighting to get the wings level and control it. He's not going to make some smooth uphill downwind landing with any chance of success. The, the, the other thing that hit me about that is it's like kind of like when somebody you know, in a movie, somebody walks up and sticks a gun in your ribs and says, get in the car with me. It's a busy street. The, the person never screams, he's got a gun and runs away because he thinks, I might get shot then. But if I get in the car, you think maybe there's a chance this will get better, even though the, the chances are it will only get worse. Now you'll go somewhere where there will be no witnesses and they can take their time to kill you. But, but it's human nature to put out, to try to put off the danger. So you take off, things are ugly. You're not going to go, well, let me try to crash now. It's no, let me try to fix this. Uh, this is scary. This is too scary for me but right now. So I'm going to keep on going down the road, which is what that guy did. Uh, you know, I look at that. The, the other thing is, and I don't know what he was doing with having them grab his leg or doing all these other things. It's like, hey, just his carabiner is right there. If he, if he would have just hooked it to his own harness, mm. and sure, he would have drug him off on landing, but he could have flared and drug him off at 20 miles per hour instead of crashing him at 40. Right. And, but it's tough to come up with those things if you, have never, if you think it could never happen to you and you don't go through all the chair flying. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the most valuable things that I use over and over and over again now uh, flying and otherwise is after I did that trip with Will Gadd, you know, he uses this thing and he gives talks about this and he talked about it on the podcast with him, but the positive power of negative thinking. And uh, that that's a, a good way to put that, isn't it? I mean, if, you, if you're just, what could potentially go wrong and how will I deal with it if and when it does? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Last question. You've been very kind with your time and this is a blast. I, I hate that we're, we even have to come to an end, but um, I'd love to ask you just, you know, when you look back at this quite storied career that I really actually do hope they make a movie up someday. Um, if you could change one thing, usually I ask this question, you know, if you go back to your 50 hour self, you know, what would you change? But I'm just going to ask just a life question here. If you, you know, when you look back at 40 plus years of flight, if you could change one thing, what would it be? 
I wish I would have taken an SIV a lot earlier. Yeah, good one. SIVs I mean, are good. I, I, I know a guy that's, you know, an outstanding cross-country pilot. You know, just decades of experience. He's probably gone to the hospital five times, if not more. He's never had an SIV. Hmm. You know, and you need to do an SIV. You really do. Uh, before I'd ever gone, I mean, I'd taught myself how to full stall and done that a few times. And, you know, that's not the smartest thing to do. Uh, but every time I go to one, I, I learn stuff. Although, uh, honestly, every time I go to one, I, I hear some stuff that I disagree with. Um, but there's still stuff to be learned. And and uh, it's really important, I think. Now, if I look at my career, you know, it's funny. Uh I kind of, I mean, I tell people I got, I'm kind of like a force gump my way through aviation. While I've had a, a dreams, it's not like I've done this great career planning and it was all, all meant to be. It's just every bad deal I ever had ended up to be a good deal in some way. So maybe it's just power of positive thinking. I, I don't know. But I also look at things, you know, I, you know, I, I, I say how my wife and I didn't get along. If she would not have been dissatisfied at, living in the desert while I was working at NASA, I probably would have never had quit and gone to the airlines. And going to the airlines, you know, gave me big airplane experience. So after I went back in the Air Force, when, when uh, you know, Skilled Composites was looking for somebody that could fly White Knight 2, the big mothership, and Spaceship 2, Suddenly, you know, I had that experience. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I had experience that not a typical fighter pilot would have. And, and I sure didn't do that through any great career planning. Hmm. So I, I, I look back, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I mean, I wish I had an engineering degree, but if I, I wish I kind of would have gone to a better college at the time. But if I did, maybe I would have taken a different job, you know, but I'm very happy with how it's turned out. Awesome. What's next? Hey, uh, you know, I look forward to to going into space on a weekly basis someday, you know. So what's next is let's get this test program complete, get the fancy interiors in, move to New Mexico and start flying passengers. <laughs> I know you have to be careful about what you say about about Virgin just in general, the media side of things, but how far out do you, would you guess they are? Well, you never know what, you know, what's next to be discovered. But the fact that, I mean, have going above 50 miles uh, and, uh, you know, we don't see anything. We lost some decals on the spaceship. I mean, big deal. Uh, I have not seen any hint of anything wrong with anything. I would have been happy to throw another rocket motor in and go right back up again. And I think any subsequent step we do to full duration or adding people is is very low, you know, low risk as opposed, I'm talking programmatically. I just don't think we're going to suddenly discover, oh, at Mach 3, it behaves totally different than Mach 2.9. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, hopefully we'll be in New Mexico by the end of 2019 carrying people. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I hope it comes true. Uh, Mark, thank you so much. This has been just a total delight. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for your time and good luck. Uh, just, man, good luck. 
Sure. And if you ever meet me on the hill, call me Forger. I hate Mark. <laughs> well, damn it. I, we should have started <laughs> off with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I just, I was not raised on Mark. I was raised on other nicknames, but uh, I've been called Forger for 30 years. It's kind of a strange uh, call sign, but I'm used to it. <laughs> I should have known better. It was in all your emails. I, 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 my, my plan <laughs> yeah, was to ask you, you about that the right hand. off the bat. Yeah, you, you'd think I would. And, <laughs> yeah, I'm a paraglider. I'm daft. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I look forward to flying with you sometime. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to fly with your son, too. Hopefully, you guys can get up here to Sun Valley and or I'll get down there to the desert. But, uh, yeah, that would be fantastic. We should spend some time cloud-based together and sh- share some more stories. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Thanks, Forger. Take care. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. If you're getting something out of the Cloud-Based Mayhem podcast, uh, all we have ever asked for is a buck a show. The reason we're not relying on sponsors to support the show is that I just don't believe that the advertising economy and the digital economy is a really, truly honest and truthful way to uh, have a conversation with you. If I'm trying to hawk the latest, the latest wing or the latest mattress or whatever it may be, um, number one, the ads are annoying to me when I listen to other podcasts, but it, there's it's... You know, ads are seen as free and podcasts are seen, are seen as free, but they're not free. Um, there's a cost there. There's an intrinsic cost there, and there's a cost uh, to the relationship between me and you, uh, my listener. So I rely on you to make all of this possible. Uh, as you can imagine, it's not just a talk and we record and we put it up. There's tons and tons of editing, and there's the music costs, and there's the storage costs, and there's the website costs. And then there's just the time, you know, sitting down with these people uh, often takes weeks, sometimes months and months and months, as this one did, uh, to put it together. So um, all we ask for is a buck a show. If you can support us financially, and not everybody can, and we don't need everybody to, but if you can support us financially, you can do so in a few different ways. Go to cloudbasedmayhem.com. And uh, you'll see the ways to do it there. You can become a regular supporter through Patreon and be rewarded for doing so uh, via T-shirts and hats and books and other stuff. Uh, And also bonus material like I talked about at the top of this show with the Paul Kuschelbauer episode. Uh, You can do one-time support through PayPal. All I ask you to do there is don't just send a buck. You know, wait till you've listened to 20 and send appropriately because PayPal takes their little chunk of things as they have to. Um, But you can support us in many other ways. If if you can't do it financially, uh, you can do it by rating us on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. You can share it with your friends on the way up to launch. You can blog about it on your own blog. You can post about it on social media. You can share it when we put it out on Facebook and Instagram and other platforms. Um, what this is all about is just sharing knowledge. We're, I'm trying to make, I'm not, I'm, we are all on the part of the show. We're trying to make this, uh, trying to make our community safer, trying to make us all better pilots and uh, just trying to also bring you some entertainment. So if it's valuable to you, uh, do any of those things that goes a long ways it makes all of this possible and i really appreciate it thank you see you on the next show cheers Echoing in my